Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious towards wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him. And he will do it. And he will bring forth your righteousness as the light. And your judgment as a noonday sun. Father, help us to rest in you, to wait patiently on you in the day in which we find ourselves. We are grateful that you are sovereignly in control over all the events that unfold in this world. And we're so thankful for the promises of your word that someday in the perfect timetable that you have established, you will bring your son back for your people. You have told us to be alert in these days in which we find ourselves, so Help us to gird up our minds for action today as we open your word. Please come and anoint me and fill me and use me to the glory of Christ, I pray in his holy name. Amen. Take God's word, would you? Genesis chapter 6 this morning. If you're joining us for the first time, we have just recently finished an entire book of the Bible. And before we begin the next one, I'm doing a 15-week series At least that's what I think it will be. It could be 20, but on God's prophetic schedule. And today I want to speak on the subject Noah's day and Jesus's return. Now, if you know the book of Genesis, there are two major divisions, chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 through 50. In chapters 1 through 11, you have the historical section and 12 through 50, the biographical section. And I said historical, not parabolical or mythological, but historical because what you find in the first 11 chapters actually happened. Each section can be summarized by four key words. In the first section, you have the creation in chapters 1 and 2. You have the fall in chapter 3. You have the flood in chapters 4 through 9. And the fourth word would be the nations there at the Tower of Babel in the final chapters 10 and 11. Now, 12 through 50 also has four key words, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So that's the book of Genesis in a nutshell. And so we are dealing here with the historical section. And one of the key persons in this section is a man named Noah. We're introduced to him in chapter 5, and his dialogue goes all the way through the 10th chapter. And God predicted that the coming of the Son of Man would be just like the days of Noah. That's what Jesus said. So there's a parallel between Noah's day and our day. And God wants us to be prepared so that we will not be surprised by what we are seeing in our day. In fact, God mentions the days that we're living in in a number of Old Testament passages, either by type or prophecy or some analogy. And Jesus taught that there's a parallel between Noah's day and our day, and we don't want to miss that this morning. I hope you found it by now, Genesis chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, come to the next Meet the Pastor. You'll receive one as a gracious gift from a family in our church. Genesis 6, beginning now in verse 1. Now, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not remain with man 
forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, or Nephilim, if you wish, were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord, notice its caps, capital L-O-R-D, this is the covenant name of God, different from capital L, small letter O-R-D. He's speaking here throughout this text of Yahweh. Then Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, from man to animals to creeping things, to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I want to remind you of the immediate context of these verses, because right here in the early chapters of Genesis, by type, you have a picture of the rapture of the church. We get our title, Genesis, from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible, Genosius. The Jewish people title their books of the Bible based on the first words in the first, say, five books of the Bible. So, Bereshit is the Hebrew word in the beginning. So, they call this the book of Bereshit, in the beginning. This is the book of beginnings, and in kernel form, you find in Genesis all of the great truths of the Bible, and God spends the whole scripture unfolding those. In Genesis 5, it sets the context for this sixth chapter. We see a picture of God's sovereign plan for the coming ages. In chapter 5, we have by type a picture of the next great event on God's prophetic calendar. All the way through chapter 5, eight times over, he died, he died, he died, he died, he died, he died, he died. And then Enoch's name appears like an oasis in a desert of death. And in verse 24 of chapter 5, and he, meaning Enoch, was not, for God took him. Enoch was a man who never experienced physical death. Here's a man whom God took physically to heaven without dying in the traditional way. He went up to heaven in a very wonderful way. It's very possible that some of us here this morning will experience the same kind of truth. That catching up, harpazo, from the Latin, we get the word rapture. It's the rapture of the church. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed, all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. I tell you a mystery. What is a mystery? It's the Greek word mysterion. You can hear our word mystery in it. And it's a word that is used in Koine Greek to describe something that was once hidden but is now revealed. And even if you didn't know Greek, if you read Ephesians 3, you could see that's the essence of this particular word. The rapture was in the Old Testament, but it was hidden. Now it is totally unfolded in the day that we live in. No one knew that Enoch pictured a whole generation of people who would not see death, but would be taken directly up into heaven. And God has now revealed that mystery as he's unfolded it in the New Testament. And so one of these days, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that's faster than you can blink your eye, Christ is going to come back and he's going to take his church 
to heaven. Now, it could happen before this day is over. No one knows the exact time, but the Bible affirms the imminent return of Jesus. Imminency means there's nothing that has to happen for Jesus to come. There's never been anything prophetically that has needed to happen for the rapture to come. God could have done it in 300 AD or 1000 AD. Now, it would have been more dramatic how he would have done some of the global issues, but if God can make the rocks shout the gospel, he can do whatever he chooses. The fact is, is that God is setting the stage and we can see visibly before our eyes how God might unfold some of the events. Now, again, Jesus said, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. And so I want us to think about the days of Noah, and as we study them, I hope you will see how God is setting the stage for the return of his son. The coming of the Son of Man, the second coming, will be like the days of Noah. So when you see prophecy being fulfilled for the second coming, you know the rapture is that much closer. Three facets in these latter times that are pictured in the days of Noah. First, Noah lived in days of great apostasy. Noah lived in days of great apostasy. Look at verse one of chapter six. Now it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land or the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whoever they chose. Now in every instance in the Old Testament, where this term sons of God uh, the Greek there, uh, the, the Greek actually in the Septuagint uh, literally says the angels of God, hoi angeloi tuthau, the angels of God. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's what most Jews read in Jesus' day, and that's why it's repeatedly quoted in the New Testament, because that was the lingua franca of the day. In either case, they understood Bnei Elohim to refer to angels. The Bnei Elohim, the sons of God. In fact, in every single instance in the Old Testament, the term sons of God is used to refer to angels. There's no exceptions. For instance, in Job 38, 7, it says the sons of God sang and shouted for joy when God laid the foundations of the world. Likewise, in Job 1.6 and Job 2.1, Satan, along with the sons of God, uh, come into the presence of God. Both holy angels and fallen angels could come into the presence of God Almighty. And there's texts like 1 Kings 22 or Zechariah 3 where you even see fallen angels coming into God's presence. Another example would be Daniel 3.25 where you see this term B'nai Elohim. If you remember, Nebuchadnezzar looks into a fiery furnace and he sees four. And the text says, in the form of the fourth is like the son of God, or you could translate it because Elohim is plural, like a son of the gods, clearly an angel. And I would not be surprised if this was indeed the angel or maybe better, the messenger of Yahweh, one of those pre-incarnate appearances of the Lord Jesus before he showed up in Bethlehem. But what I'm wanting you to see is that throughout the Old Testament, the term sons of God is used in reference to angels. And in the New Testament, interestingly, born-again believers were called not just children of God, but in Romans 8, 14, sons of God. 
The Bible only uses this term, sons of God, for those that are direct and immediate creation of God Almighty. It explains why in the genealogy, Adam is called a son of God, because he is directly created by God. And there are only three categories that would fit, angels, Adam, and those of us who are born again, who are new creations, 2 Corinthians 5 says. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. All three are special and specific direct creations of God. Adam, Christians, and as in this context, the sons of Elohim. Uh, and again, it can be used of both holy or fallen angels. Context determines, in this case, fallen angels who cohabited with uh, the daughters of men. In fact, for 1,500 years of church history, that was the only way this passage of Scripture was understood. And that's significant because obviously if that's the singular voice of the church fathers who write and live immediately after the apostles died, then this is how the apostles would have taught the text. Now, I need to say parenthetically while we're here uh, that sometimes you will hear these verses preached, and someone will say, well, the sons of God are the godly line of Seth, and they intermarry with the ungodly line of Cain, and that what is at view here is a mixed marriage, that is, between a believer and an unbeliever. Well, that interpretation is impossible, and you need to be able to explain this. I've preached this text before, but if I ask you for three reasons this morning why that interpretation is impossible, some of us would glaze over. But I'm asked this repeatedly. I was asked in the Bible line on Tuesday about this particular passage. First of all, it does not say the sons of men saw the daughters of men were beautiful, but rather notice, look at your Bible, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And so they took them as wives. And so the contrast is not made between the descendants of Seth and the descendants of Cain, as God could have easily and plainly said, but between the sons of God and the daughters of men. If this were some sin of a mixed marriage, that is between believers and unbelievers, it seems rather strange that only the sons of Seth and not the daughters of Seth were involved in this sin. To say that the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, are the sons of Seth because Seth had a godly heritage would seem very strange because then you're concluding that only the daughters of Cain and not the sons of Cain were involved. Think your way through that. The reason I take the time to underscore this is because sadly there are many today who are guilty of eisegesis. We are to exegete the scripture to read out what God has plainly said. We're not to read into the scripture. And so their argument is not convincing. They're guilty of reading into the text because God is drawing a clear distinction here between angels and women. And that interpretation, again, is consistent with the fact that the Hebrew Bible never once uses the term b'nai alhim to refer to humans, but only to angels. Secondly, one cannot ignore the truth that the marriage between the two groups produced a race of giants. The offspring of the union between the sons of God and the daughters of men are extraordinary. They have unusual children. 
In fact, they are so unusual, this becomes a term kind of like Armageddon. Someone describes a crisis and they say it's Armageddon-like. And even so, as time unfolded, even after the great flood and all these people were wiped out, there are people who are referred to as Nephilim because of their great size. But these were unusual people. Look at verse four. The Nephilim, the King James renders it or really interprets it, giants, were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The Living Bible captures it this way. In those days and even afterwards, when the evil beings from the spirit world were sexually involved with human women, their children became giants of whom so many legends are told. Now again, those who argue that this is intermarriage between Seth's people and Cain's people often appear to Ma- appeal to Matthew twenty-two thirty, where Jesus said, in heaven, believers are not angels, but like angels, and that we neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, while it is true that angels do not marry other angels, they can materialize in bodily form. And in every single instance in Scripture, when an angel materializes as a human, there are always males. There's no exception. And we know also that angels can assimilate food and drink. Genesis 18, when uh, Abraham entertains those angels. And we know the possibility of the two angels that came to Lot's home, the possibility that they could have literally, physically, had a relationship with humans is underscored in that very text of Scripture, not to mention foolish Lot, who offers his own daughters for their own evil. Know, too, that angels, the Bible says, are greater in might and power than are humans. And so if you've been to the garden tomb, which is a class A spot when you visit Israel, the Jews, uh, the Romans would have secured the t- the, uh, that tomb with a stone that is estimated to have weighed at least 2,000 pounds. It would have taken a mighty angel of God to have moved that stone on that occasion, and that's what happened. A third reason I know that these are angels is because the New Testament gives us commentary on this particular portion of Scripture. Put out in the margin, Jude 6. Jude, there's just one chapter, so we don't usually say Jude 1 colon 6. We just say Jude 6, if you're new to the Bible. Jude 6 is written to uh, battle uh, the apostasy that God said would come, not just in Jude's day, but especially at the end of time. And let me read Jude in verse 6. And angels who do not keep their own domain, but abandon their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So this verse tells me that there were some angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandon their proper abode. That is to say, they did not function in the way that God created them to function. Now, there are different kinds of fallen angels that are in Scripture, but unlike most fallen angels who have the chance to wage war in the heavenly realms against each other and against believers, this particular class are in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So what exactly did these angels do that brought this unique and eternal lockup in this place that Peter calls Tartarus, translated hell in most English texts. Verse seven tells us, just as Sodom 
and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these. Stop right there. In the same way as these who? As in the same way of these angels just described in verse 6. In other words, there's a parallel between the sin of Sodom and the sin of these angels. Both left their proper abode the way God had created them, and they did something that was unnatural. They did something that was forbidden by God. I don't care what the news is saying this month being Pride Month, that homosexuality is something that we should embrace and endure. It is an evil. It is an evil that can be forgiven like anything else, but it is nonetheless an evil. And I don't care what Fox News said this week, that some boy, even before he could speak, identified himself as a male, uh, as a female, or whatever it was, a girl who identified himself as a male. Look, these are evils in our day. And we learn that these angels, like the men of Sodom, notice, indulged in gross immorality. They went after strange flesh, and they are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So Jude tells us there were some angels who, like the men of Sodom, committed a wicked sin and that they went after strange flesh. And in this case, these angels did what was forbidden. They cohabitated with women. Now put also out there in the margin, if you don't have it, 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. Let me read that text for you. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just, that's him, for us the unjust. Why? That he might bring us to God. Christ's death is substitutionary. It's not an example. It's not an act of martyrdom for a cause. He died for you. He died instead of you. He died in your place to take your penalty. Notice, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Doesn't say put to death in the, put to death in the flesh and made alive in the flesh. Now, that truth that he, his flesh was literally resurrected is unfolded in the verses that will follow, but he's not there yet. Put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, in which, in his spirit, also he went, and what did he do? He made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Sometime between the time the Lord Jesus died on the cross, was laid in that tomb, and came out of the grave early Sunday morning, he went on a preaching mission. And so Christ uh, went and spoke to a particular class of angels who had not heard of his great victory. Some of you grew up in liturgical churches where the Apostles' Creed was repeated every week, where it says Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and then on the third day was rose from the dead. He descended into hell for what purpose? To preach. Now, sadly, there were some Catholics who said he descended into hell to pay for sin. And so some Protestants, therefore, took that out of the Apostles' Creed because on the cross, he shouted, it is finished. The payment was done on the cross. But he descended into hell to preach to these angels, these spirits who are now in prison. Look at verse 20 of 1 Peter, or listen to it. Who once were disobedient, so he's giving us the time frame, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And so while angels cannot procreate with other angels, when in human form they can and they did in Noah's day, and the offspring was a race of freaks, of monsters, mighty men, men of renown. 
At the most, they were half demon, half human. At the least, they were demon-possessed people, which might help explain the severity of the judgment that followed in that great worldwide flood. Satan was trying to cloud the human, uh, the true humanity of man in which God would bring the Savior of the world. And so there's an unparalleled evil that took place at this time in human history, and God said, I will not have it. I will wipe them off the face of the earth. But this breed of people, they were preaching evil, just like we studied last week, that in the end times there will be doctrines of demons. And so if the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah, and if the days of Noah were days of gross apostasy, is there any parallel? Well, if you were here last week, I preached a whole message from 1 Timothy 4.1. Let me read that verse to you and dust off your minds if you've forgotten it already. I hope you haven't. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, not last days, latter times, there's a difference. We underscore that. Some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Likewise, Jesus spoke of these days before his second coming. He said, and at that time, many will fall away and they will betray one another and hate one another. So as we think about apostasy, again, it's not atheism, it's not agnosticism or some other ism that you can think of. The term apostasy has a much more narrow definition in the New Testament. It doesn't just refer to false religion, it refers to someone who claims Christianity and either falls away from it and creates some new form of Christianity. That's, we have a plethora of that all across America, even under the banner of evangelicalism that does not represent true historical Christianity. So someone wrote me this week, and what's wrong with Joyce Meyer? I said, are you kidding me? I haven't responded yet. She's a nut. She's an apostate. She's a false teacher. But because people don't know their Bibles, they cannot tell the difference. And then there are those who not just fall away, they totally renounce the Christian faith. So every apostate is an unbeliever, but not every unbeliever is an apostate. There are people who have never even heard the plan of salvation, and they're not falling away from the truth that they have not heard. So again, there's a narrow definition in the New Testament of what an apostate is, and both Jesus and the Apostle Paul describes people who are outwardly Christian, but inwardly still lost, and they turn away from the faith. And again, as the question came in on the Bible line on Tuesday, when someone falls away from the faith... He's not describing someone who is a Christian and then lost it. Again, the articular use of the word faith. Not just faith, but the faith. The faith, as Jude will say, delivered by the apostles once for all time. That body of truth we call Holy Scripture. He's not describing true Christians. He's describing pseudo-Christians because true Christians cannot lose something that is eternal. And so while the whole history of the church has had doctrinal controversy and confusion and conflict. At the end of time, 
God said it will be accentuated, it will be alive, it will be thriving like never before. And those are the days of Noah, and those are our days, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. So number one, there were days of gross apostasy. Number two, there were days of godless anarchy. There were days of godless anarchy. We read now in Genesis 6 and in verse 5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. You see that word intent, it's the Hebrew word yes there. And it is used uh, sometimes of imagination. In fact, I think the King James renders it that way, the imagination of man. And at its root, it means to shape, like a potter would shape something in his hand. What he's saying is there are were new philosophies, new ideas that were being spawned and molded by men. They were fashioning philosophies after wickedness, after perversion, after vice, after immorality. Hold your finger here, turn to the book of Romans, would you? The book of Romans, go to Romans chapter one. Uh, Some of you I see don't even have a Bible in your hand. You need a Bible. You need a Bible. This is a Bible-believing church. I'm not here to empty my mind. I'm here to renew your mind with the truth of Holy Scripture. Romans chapter 1, Paul describes godless anarchy when God abandons a nation. And there are three sequential steps that everyone should know virtually by heart. And it's when God gives a nation, and in our day, it's not just a nation, he's giving a world over to these things. Uh, Notice he will describe in Romans 1 how the lusts of their hearts are given to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And that's precisely what happens when a nation says no to God. God, we don't want you. We don't want you in our schools. That's the government school system. No prayer. No Bible reading, no Ten Commandments on the walls. Teach evolution, that's what they're being taught. They're taught that we've been germinated from out of the glue into the zoo, that became you, that you're some sophisticated monkey. That is evil beyond evil. And that's why they're teaching transgenderism, yes, in Buford County, and yes, the president's of the, the President of the United States this past week reminded us that the lunch program, the breakfast program that children are being fed all across America will be held hostage this fall unless they implement his transgender policies. Boys being able to use girls' restrooms, girls being able to use boys' restrooms, locker rooms. And as best I can tell, there are 266,000 children in the state of South Carolina that will come under this policy. This is the evil of our day. And we need to be paying attention and not be stupid. And so we rejected God and God gave us over to sexual impurity. And so the internet is dominated by millions and millions of immoral pornographic websites to feed people's insatiable fallen lusts. And it's resulting in the destruction of marriages and sexual immorality. Look at verse 26, step two. For this reason, for what reason? 
For the reason Paul just gave in verse 25, that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the unnatural function for that which is unnatural. That's lesbianism. And I think it's interesting that the Spirit of God first speaks of the degradation of women because they're usually the last to go. Women have been given a certain mothering instinct, a certain protective instinct over their own children. But under the wrath of abandonment, women are given over, notice here, to degrading passions. In further and in the same way, also, the men abandon the natural function of the women and burn in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. That's homosexuality. Homosexuality now officially sanctioned by the Supreme Court of the United States, where we've gone in 2010 from 40% of Americans approving it to, in 2022, 75% of Americans saying it's okay, and 31% of Generation Z say they are LGBTQIA+, whatever it is. And so in a society embraces adultery, lesbianism, homosexuality as a way of life, they are in deep trouble. The third step, verse 28, and just as they did not see it fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved, an adakimikos. Uh, it's an interesting word. The word dakimos is a word that is used to refer to a metal that is tested and it is proven pure. Adakimos, you put the alpha in front of it, it changes it. He's describing something that is not pure, something that is depraved. Some translations say reprobate, useless. The Russian Bible says an upside down mind. The mind that considers God as worthless. And a mind that considers God as worthless will itself become worthless. And that's what we are seeing. And so God begins to unfold in stage three, 21 vices in verses 29 to 32 that could be a commentary on the day that we are living in. It is really scary when you look at it. And we're wondering, what do we do with all this violence in America? Pass more laws? Mm -mm, You can't pass enough laws. These are issues of the heart. These are issues of a godless generation. And we have these teachers in our government school that are polluting the minds of little children, damaging their consciences with evil by saying good is evil and evil is good. My friends, The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah, and Jesus makes it clear that there's a direct correlation between his second coming and the days that led up to the flood. And so we have innocent children both before and after birth being exterminated. We have this transgender homosexual lifestyle as being accepted as normal. And this is men like a a molder, And again, that's what the word is used of, this word imagination. They are are molding, they are shaping ideologies that are contrary to God. And you haven't even seen the start of it because indeed it will be continually evil after the church is removed. We'll speak about this next week. And this restraining influence of the Spirit of God is gone. 
And so Noah lived in days of gross apostasy. He lived in days of godless anarchy. Third, Noah lived in days of great apathy, in days of great apathy. God did not want to destroy man. God wanted man to repent, which is why we read in Genesis 6 and verse 3, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. This verse informs me that God's striving with man just as he was striving with man in our day. God is working, God is pulling, God is tugging on some of you listening today to make a decision for Jesus. I, it is sad, but there are people across the world who think they are born again, and they are in for the greatest shock that is coming. When Jesus will say, I never knew you. If he's striving with you today, you had better listen. And if you've never received Jesus, you should listen. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. God is not saying you'll live to 120 years. He's saying, I'm going to give man 120 years more and then it's up. Now think about this. We learned something in the New Testament. On Genesis, we have some divine commentary I think you could assume it to be true, but God explicitly says it's true in the New Testament that Noah was, quote, 2 Peter 2, 5, put it out in the margin, a preacher of righteousness. In other words, all the time while Noah was building that ark, God was not hiding his intentions. He was warning men. And how did people respond? Well, they yawned over sermons. Only eight persons on the day the great flood came were saved. Noah and Mrs. Noah, their three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their three wives. The Bible says eight persons in all. There was a whole generation that was swallowed up by their apathy. And of course, this is what Jesus underscored in Matthew chapter 24. Let me read it to you, Matthew 24. You can turn there if you wish, beginning in verse 37. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So in the same way that the people in Noah's day were taken away in the judgment of the flood, so they will be taken away when Christ comes back. Look at verse 40. Then there shall be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Now the illustration in his parable is straightforward in both examples. There will be a separation such that one individual will be taken and the other individual will be left behind. And the context is clear that the one, one individual is a believer and the other individual is an unbeliever. So the question related to this passage is who is taken and who is left behind? That is to say, is the believer taken and the unbeliever left behind or vice versa? Well, if you get your theology from a book that Hal Lindsey wrote, it wasn't all bad, but there was a lot of error in it. He went to the same seminar. I went, look, when someone's been married five times, you should question their theology right off. Not to mention, there was a popular song that Larry Norman wrote. He said, a man in the 1970s, I still have it beaming through my head because they made a movie out of it. And a man and wife asleep in bed, she hears a noise and turns her head. He's gone. 
I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill, one disappears and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. Now it is true that at the rapture, there will be two people together, one will be taken and one will be left, but that's not what's in view here. Contextually, the Lord has underscored in verses 36 through 39, those who were prepared in the days of Noah and those who were not prepared. The emphasis is on unbelievers who are taken away in the flood. Two classes of people were alive in Noah's day. Those who were unbelieving and swept away in divine judgment and those like Noah who were left and were not destroyed. In verse 39 underscores, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Even so, at the second coming, unbelievers will be taken away in the day of judgment and wrath and those left on the earth to receive and enjoy the blessings of the coming kingdom will be believers. Tribulation saints who survived the great tribulation, not to mention resurrections, uh, Old Testament saints who are resurrected then, and church saints who come back with Christ to rule and reign. And so just as Noah entered into a brand new world after the flood, during the millennial reign of the Messiah, we will go into a revitalized, reconstinated world. And Luke 17 underscores it this way. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, where, Lord? Where, Lord? Don't miss that. Where, Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. I mentioned to you last week, we live in a state where vultures are everywhere. It's kind of neat. I love to watch them fly high in the sky and see their beautiful wingspan. Some people hate them. Look, they're God's garbage cans. They keep things clean around here. In either case, uh, just as the body causes vultures to gather, so spiritually dead people are consigned and disqualified from the coming kingdom. Now, we'll discuss that further when we come to the Olivet Discourse. But what I want you to see is at the second coming, those who are left behind are believers. Those who are carried away in judgment are unbelievers. Now, it's just the opposite of the rapture. Those who are caught up are believers. Those who are left behind are unbelievers. So you don't want to be left behind in the rapture if you were a tribulation saint. None of you will be able to be because you've heard the gospel before the tribulation. If you don't believe it before the rapture, you'll believe what's false. But the people who will want indeed to be left behind at the second coming are tribulation saints. So here's the point. They were eating, drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage just as if nothing had ever happened. And again, contrary to popular commentary that this is a reference to drunkenness and divorce. He's not speaking of that. Listen to the parallel passage, Luke 17. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. There it is again, eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. What does that mean? Well, Jesus then adds, it will be the same on the day the Son of Man will be revealed. In other words, the parallel here is clear. Right up until the very day the flood came, people were carrying on as if everything were normal. They were enjoying their food, their drink, they were giving their children away in marriage, they were buying, they were selling, they were planning, they were building. But in spite of the preaching of Noah, they just yawned at his sermons ignored the warning that he gave. They were just as sure that tomorrow would come as today was very much as alive. 
This was a people who were living in gross apostasy and godless anarchy and indeed in great apathy. And in the final analysis we read here in Genesis 6 and verse 6, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, and to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor, or you could render it grace, in the eyes of the Lord. Noah is a breath of fresh air in the midst of all this judgment. Now, if Jesus said there's a parallel between Noah's day and our day, what lessons can we learn? Three lessons I want you to underscore in your thinking this morning. Number one, I know I'm ready for Jesus' return if I'm not being shaped by the culture. I know I am ready for his return if the culture is not shaping me. Now, I know that the environment of the last days is going to be evil because God tells us. And I hope you know that as we approach the end of the age, things are not going to get better. Things are going to get worse. You say you're a pessimist. I'm not a pessimist. I'm a biblicist. I'm a realist. That's precisely what God says. That ultimately, as Christians, we will have more and more and more people who will oppose our value system. And the two camps will become more and more clearly divided. Again, Jesus said, most people's love will grow cold. He's describing, we'll look at this verse next week, contextually believers. The love of most believers will grow cold. And so they will rationalize their behavior and their sin and adopt the ways of the world. Now listen, like Noah, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I remember back in 1977, I had been a believer for just a couple of years, and I did my very first in-depth study on Bible prophecy. The more I read and studied what God said about the future days, I was motivated to follow him. And by the way, that's what a balanced study of Bible prophecy does. Listen to these words in 1 John 3, 3. And everyone who has this hope, the hope of Jesus' return, everyone who has this hope fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. I think I had a sense maybe of what Noah had felt as God revealed to him the impending judgment that was coming on the wicked generation in which he lived. And I said, Lord, if no one else wants to honor the Lord, say, I want to. If no one else wants to keep their mind pure, I want to. If no one else wants to read and study the word of God, I want to. If no one else wants to tie to the local church, I want to. If no one else wants to win people to Jesus, I want to. God, I want to obey you. I want to walk with you. And that's what a right study of Bible prophecy will do to your heart. Let me ask you, what is the driving passion of your heart this morning? See, Noah gave his full attention to the things of God. Surely he still had to farm and feed his family and have a regular job. But the rest of his time, he spent in the construction of the ark that was like an ocean liner. And all the while they are marrying, they were being given marriage, they were buying, they were planning, they were building their houses. The rest of the world was living high off the hog. And I imagine they thought Noah was a fool, that he was different, that he was not normal. Some of the young teenagers have been telling me of the opposition that they face 
that they're viewed as not normal. Yes, you can expect it, but blessed are you when men persecute you. He took his time, talent, and treasure, and he built a boat that wouldn't even float. But there was a turning point when all the real estate that men had was not very real because it was covered up in water. All their money was absolutely useless. They lost everything they owned, but what did Noah lose? He didn't lose anything. He gained it all. He walked into a brand new world. As Psalm 37 in the Sermon on the Mount teaches, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You don't worry if you're using your time, talent, and treasure for things that matter. If you're living a holy life, if you're here in the Lord's day, and some of you are still watching me on TV because you're lazy and disobedient. I'm not talking about the dear precious mom who's home with those sick kids or someone who has some unusual immune system. I'm talking about disobedient Christians. You need to be here with the people of God where God inhabits the praises of his people. Now listen to your pastor. Please understand obedience is at an all-time low in our day. What I find so interesting is that Adam's son, Seth, unlike his brother Cain, wanted to obey God. In Seth's day, in Genesis 4.26, it says, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And then what follows is the godly line of Seth, right down to Noah. And do you know what? Of all these people that came out of Seth's loins, who knew the Lord, who were saved, only two out of the whole bunch does it say, that they walked with God. One is found in Genesis 5, the other in Genesis 6. The Bible says in Genesis 5, 24, Enoch walked with God. And then in 6, 9, Noah walked with God. Now, there are hundreds and hundreds of people here who I have no doubt know the Lord Jesus Christ. But I wonder, how many could God say, that man, that woman, that boy, that girl, they walk with God me more than anything else. I want to walk with God. I want my life to count for the living God. Listen, the reason I've taken the time to go over the days of Noah is because we are living in a day where more and more people are being shaped by the culture. We're living right in the midst of a depraved generation. But right in the midst of a godless society, Noah made a series of right decisions, and he was able to raise a godly heritage. Now, I don't know what your past is like. Maybe you don't have a strong line of born-again Christians behind you. But the fact is, is that you can walk with God. You can start a new line. And in the midst of this unholy mess, you can obey God. You say, oh, I've made an unholy mess of my life. Good news, God is in the business of changing lives. If any man is in the Messiah, he is a brand new creation. His old life has passed away and everything has come new. Now, the beautiful truth found here in verse 8, notice the contrastive conjunction that it begins with, but, circle it, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah is a recipient of the grace and favor of God, and so can you. Today can be the first day of the rest of your life. First, you make your decisions, and then ultimately, it takes time. Don't be fooled. Your decisions will ultimately make you.
So number one, I know I'm ready for his return if I am not being shaped by the culture. Number two, I know I'm ready for his return if I'm walking by faith, if I'm walking by faith. Now, Noah made it into what we often call God's hall of fame of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, where God takes those great men and women of the Old Testament, and he highlights so many who walked by faith in the Lord. Listen to these words, Hebrews 11, verse seven. By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to the faith, according to faith. Now it says here that God warned Noah about things not yet seen. What does it mean, God warned Noah? Did God say, Noah, you better watch out? Actually, the Greek word is an interesting word that is rendered here being warned. It's used outside of the scripture in Koine Greek of someone who transacts business or gives advice. And when the word is used inside of Holy Scripture, it's used to refer to divine instruction or divine communication. You could render it, the sense of the verses, by faith Noah being divinely instructed or divinely communicated about things not yet seen. And of course, we need to ask, what kind of communication did God give him concerning things not yet seen? Verse 7 says, by faith being warned of God about things not yet seen. What was not yet seen? What was it that God warned him about? It never rained before the time of the great flood. Suppose it had never rained before, and someone came up to you and said, it's going to rain. Oh, really? What's rain? Well, you know the water we drink out of the lakes that God has given us? It's actually going to come out of the sky and fall over us. In fact, we're going to have so much of it, even the highest mountain in the world will be underwater. Hey, friend, let me give you the name of a good shrink. There's something wrong with you. Listen, before the great flood, God watered the earth in a different way. Listen to Genesis 2, verses 5 and 6. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground, but a mist used to rise up from the earth and water the whole surface of the earth. So we learn from Scripture that very possibly there was even around the earth maybe some great water canopy, just like God designed a vapor ring around Saturn. Many Bible scholars believe, based on the reading of the text, that there was a great water canopy, maybe even an ice canopy, all around the world. Listen to what Genesis 1 and verse 6 says. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse and the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven or sky. I think what happened is it was kind of a terranium effect that there was a perfect greenhouse with this water canopy all around the earth. That's why scientists have found up in the Antarctic mammoths, elephants with literal green vegetation when they dug them up in frozen ice. That's why uh, they have found green tropical plants frozen under the ice in the Antarctica. And then when God allowed it at all to condescend, because listen, if it rained all the rain all across the earth, we had a good rain yesterday, at least in Seabrook, and we had some puddles here and there. But if it rained until it could rain no more, it would only be about a foot deep. 
So the waters came from above, the waters came from below, and God covered the whole earth with a flood. So the idea of rain in and of itself was totally foreign to this man. And so God is, Noah is warned by God of something he had never, ever seen before. Now, it's interesting to compare the language here in Hebrews 11. Look at Hebrews 11 in verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then in verse 7, by faith, Noah being warned about things not seen. And so there's that phrase again from God's description of faith, of things not yet seen. Every person in Hebrews chapter 11 received direct revelation from God, instruction from God, and Noah was no exception. Noah had never seen a rainbow before. Why? Because it had never rained before. Noah did not say to God, okay, God, if you're going to send rain, let me at least feel what it's like. No, Noah simply believed what God said. And Hebrews reminds us that faith is the assurance, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. God had spoken clearly. By the way, there's an intellectual component to faith. Faith is not committing intellectual suicide. It's not a matter of psyching yourself into believing something that's not even true. It's not taking a leap into the dark. It's taking a step into the light. And it's based on revelation. Something that God has said. He's not asking you to believe something that you don't even know what it's about. He has given a clear, specific message. It's called the gospel, the death, burial, and the resurrection that he's asking you to believe in in order to be saved. What I'm wanting you to see is that Noah had some facts. It was not some feeling. It was not some liver quiver experience. God had spoken and Noah had believed. He responded in faith because he was a man of faith. Now there's a third lesson I learned from Noah's life. Number three, I know I'm ready for Christ's return if I have a godly fear. If I have a godly fear. Again, I get some divine commentary in Genesis six here in Hebrews chapter 11. Very clearly, he was moved with godly fear. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. The King James renders the Greek text this way. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not not seen as yet, moves with fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household. We see a picture here of Noah's faith. In respect... In reverence, the CSB renders it in holy fear. He responded, and I would underscore what I am emphasizing here is that fear is not simply the product of emotionalism. That's our false teachers of our day. They're just emotional lunatics. Taking scripture out of context is a way of life. But again, because people don't even know the Bible, they can't even see these people. They think they're great people. But listen, emotions devoid of truth can be very, very dangerous. You need some some basis in which you can sort through your emotions. And that basis is the word of God. You know, sometimes pastors will say to me, "I, I can't seem to get my people to do anything. They just sit there. They're just dead. I said, well, back them up into the word of God. Start teaching expositorily, verse by verse by verse by verse by verse, and you'll move them. 
Noah received direct revelation from God, and every time we open Holy Scripture, you are reading the revelation of Scripture, the breath of God, and it moved him with fear. You say, well, you know, preachers shouldn't motivate people by fear. They should just motivate people by love. It's not an either or. It's a both and. There's nothing wrong with being motivated by fear. Your doctor motivates you with fear. He says, you better stop smoking. You better slow down. You better get more sleep or you're going to have a heart attack. The law motivates you with fear. And now we got those stickers all over the gas pumps again. You leave without paying for your gas. You'll lose your license. What are they doing? They're motivating you with fear. Even people motivate themselves with fear. They wear these masks. They wash their hands because they don't want to get sick. We look both ways when we cross the street. We're motivated by fear. Why? Because we don't want to get knocked off by a vehicle. But I want to remind you that your greatest danger is not getting hit by a car or getting sick or having a heart attack. Your greatest danger is to die without Christ unforgiven. The Bible says the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. And so by faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. He didn't go around saying, well, what do you think I should do? Sometimes we run around asking people for advice when God has already spoken and he certainly has not stuttered. Noah responded in fear based on the revelation of God. And so in summarizing this man's obedience, we read this in Genesis 6.22. Thus Noah did according to all that God had communicated had, had commanded him, so he did. And if you go back and study carefully Genesis chapter 6, you will know that there's a whole generation of people who said, Noah, he's crazy. He's out of his mind. He's a little bit fanatical, when in reality, he was the only person who was right. For decades, he built an ark, and for decades, it must have been, poor old Noah, poor old Noah, and then one day, the rain came. Noah was out of step with his generation because he marched to a different drumbeat. He marched according to the revelation of Scripture, and many of you are out of step with this generation. You are a man or a woman or a boy or a girl of faith, and you are marching to a different drumbeat. Again, we read here, by faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen and reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world. The NEB renders it, through his faith, he put the whole world in the wrong. You see, they saw in Noah a righteous standard, and that condemned them. Again, Peter says he was a preacher of righteousness. And so with his words and with his life, he condemned the world. But unfortunately, their hearts were so hard. We read in God's assessment, now the earth was corrupt and the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. What a contrast with Noah. Noah was righteous. Noah was a blameless man in his time. Noah walked with God. He was a person of integrity, and by his blameless life, he condemned the world. Let me ask you, does your life condemn people? 
I didn't ask you if your words condemned people. I asked you, does your life condemn people? No was out of step, and so are many of you this morning, and you need to keep walking like Noah did, and some of you, you're out of step in the wrong way, and you need to get your life right. He contended as a preacher of righteousness with the people in his day. By his holy life and by the words he spoke, people were brought under the conviction. Now, you say, was everyone lost? Well, during the 120 years that God was waiting on people, we know there were some people who were saved. Methuselah was saved. He gave his life to the Lord. There were probably other boys and girls and people, but on the day the flood came, as time progressed, only eight people in all on the day of the great flood were saved. He condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness according to faith. God has always saved people in the same way. Noah became an heir of righteousness. He didn't earn righteousness. He was an heir of righteousness. It is gifted. He wasn't made righteous by building an ark. He was saved by the grace of God Almighty, and that's how he will save you. Now, I don't know what it was like on the day the flood came. Perhaps people woke up and it was just another sunshiny day like the day before. Remember, it never rained. And people just were living their routines of life. And then kind of an ominous feeling began to develop. And the clouds began to boil. And there was lightning. And the rain began to fall on the faces. And the great fissures of the deep began to open up. And, and water began to come out of the earth. And that great ark began to float. And people were swimming, no, 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 open it up. But it was too late. God opens the door that no one can shut, and God shuts a door that no one can open. You say, you're just being sensational. That's what they said about old Noah. That he was just some sensationalist. Listen, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, the scripture warns, don't harden your heart. Don't boast about tomorrow because you don't know what tomorrow may bring. You say, well, I don't think he's coming back anytime soon. They didn't think there was a flood coming. And most people are so blind to what is happening around them, Christians included. In the blinking, in the twinkling of an eye, the rapture will happen, and it will be eternally too late for many. Let's bow in prayer. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the days of the Son of Man. The same was true in the days of Lot, eating, drinking, buying, selling, planning, building, But just like in Noah's day, and just like in Lot's day, it will be the same when the Son of Man is revealed. Father, help someone today. They are lukewarm and apathetic. Help them to repent and get their hearts right. Help someone today who's unsure of their salvation. 
to call upon Jesus in faith before you stop knocking on their door and you stop striving with them. Help some dear believer who needs to obey you and to be a member of a Bible-believing church to come today. We commit the invitation to you in Jesus' name, amen.